0: Hello and welcome to the BBC Country Farm Magazine podcast, or podcast as we like to call it. This is episode 8 of season 6. Every week we publish an episode to give you an escape into the countryside and explore beautiful landscapes, chat to interesting people and often meet some spectacular wildlife. My name is Fergus Collins and I'm the editor of the magazine and host of this podcast. In this very lovely episode, we head back to the Isle of Seal in the Inner Hebrides to spend a summer morning with poet and BBC Radio regular, Kenneth Stephen. Kenneth communes with oyster catchers and mountains, revels in the history of his island home, and shares some of his brilliant poetry. It's a delightful little adventure into a
1: beautiful soundscape. I've come up this late morning at the end of the first week of July, as a swallow flies above my head there. And for the last weeks and months since I was given this wonderful recorder, I have been pretty much a coward, sitting in my writing studio, place where I write and paint, and making recordings there in safety. I have now been supplied with a windshield if that, whatever the correct term for it is. And I wanted to come out on a relatively still day on Seal this summer to record en plein air and to get some of the sounds, obviously, of the world that surrounds us here. And I've chosen to come up to one of my very favourite places on the island. and try to describe it because I don't find that very easy. The north end, the north butt, as it were, of the Isle of Seal, which is perhaps a mile round, or not as much as that round, from the bridge that links the island to the mainland. That wonderful early stone arch of a bridge. Half a mile, three quarters of a mile from that to the west, are wonderful fingers and toes of land and sea and I've chosen to come to one of those places and to share it with some very infuriated oyster catchers whom I'm very much hoping I've I've managed to record. A sandpiper just went past there. I want to try to give a sense of what it is that I'm looking at on this beautiful late summer morning at the end, as I say, of this first week in July. Well, to the to the east of me there's a rampart of hills and beyond that rampart of hills as the last of the oyster catchers goes um is the bridge. If if I could move that last hillside I would I would see it. Then there's beach and bit of water bit of water behind me I'm looking out to the Firth of Lorne and to I suppose eventually um, the Isle of Mull right out to the west and this morning when I came walking down the track towards this place I had wonderful views of Ben Moore which just means the Big Ben um, and is indeed the highest point on the Isle of Mull at just a whisker over 3,000 feet making it a, a Munro. Oh, finally, I have quiet. Extraordinary to come here and to be surrounded by such noise, but that's what I wanted. I've been here several times and tried to record in the past. I've tried to record in high winds, and I've just taken home a blustery nonsense with a few words audible behind it. So I hope that today conditions would be gentle enough for a different kind of visit. I'm pleased another place within reach. So that headland I talk about, that wooded headland beyond which the bridge lies, to the north of that, and sort of my, what well, would it be, my northeast? I've got my directions right. It's Poldoran. There's one name I can give. And that's a useful name because it has to do with the otter in Gaelic. Doran is the, is the word for, for an otter. So often, of course, place names can give us clues to what, what the history of a, a location is, to what it's, what it's known for. So obviously that was a place that was, was well, well known for its otters. And I suspect, although we haven't seen any seal otters yet, um, they are most definitely here, partly because the waters are so rich in fish The Firth of Lorne is well protected. Oh, a sudden quiet. Extraordinary. (laughs) Not for long. There's a little island just out beyond me and the oyster catchers are there. Whether they're having their second brood for this year, I don't know. It's a little rock. I can see some oyster catcher heads peeping over the top there. It's definitely their territory. The others are quiet, so I've try to sink down into the undergrowth on my little promontory here with which is covered i may say it's another of these fingers of land going out into into the into the sea and it's a a beautiful little promontory covered with birch trees with heather and i'm sitting on a grassy bank just on the very last bit of it, looking out at that oyster catcher island. And all around me are, I'm trying to find a polite way to describe them, they are goose darts. We have an island that's busy all year with geese, and most of our grey lag are gone to Iceland at the moment. Some remain, um, because of course not all grey lag these days are disappearing. For Myvatn and the summer breeding grounds of Iceland. Some are choosing to remain for whatever reason if it's change in temperature but and beside our little loch further south on the Isle of Sio we had the joy of watching two families of grey lag bringing up their young three and six youngsters respectively and safety in numbers they would go out on the lochen every morning with their respective broods teaching them to swim and it's wonderful, wonderful to see that and the extraordinary pace at which those grey lag, those young greylag grew from tiny goslings, vulnerable tiny goslings into strong birds that they are now in a, matter of, in a matter of weeks. And I'm wondering if this was the best place to choose, I've also though while sitting here today as well as seeing a lot of a lot of swallows working working the seashore around me because it's a still day and a warm day and doubtless there are plenty of midges and flies to keep them well fed. I've been he- hearing and sadly I haven't managed to record it he- hearing curlew uh, that wonderful plaintive mournful cry. So it's I did choose to and a bee just went past me um with a great noise I've been hearing the glades that have passed further south on Seal today have been loud with bees. And that's that's good to hear as well. Amid so many stories of the loss of the loss of bees. So this is I suspect probably my, my second favourite place on the island. What I really wanted to find and haven't found, I admit, is a pond famous for its dragonflies. I have spoken in the past in my recordings about how Seal is famous as a slate island, one of several, south of Oban on the west coast of Scotland. Consequently, I am looking at a beach just behind me behind where that oyster catcher flew away and that beach is made up not of sand but entirely of broken pieces of slate and that's perhaps uh, certainly an interesting feature of of Sion and of the neighbouring islands. I, I confess to finding it a little bit depressing that the beaches are all black. They're black with broken fragments of slate. A hundred years ago and more there were there were literally thousands of slate miners on these islands working them and as was said in books going on to sending away those ships to roof the world that means as i say that there are no there are no white beaches there are no beautiful hebridean the sort of quintessential Hebridean beaches of golden sand. None whatsoever. You have to go to Mull and to Iona and to places north of Oban to find those. So the beaches are a little bit bleak. They remind me of the ones that I have seen and walked on in Iceland, composed of volcanic rock. But they are beaches of a kind, they're just different. But to go back to that slate mining story, because when the slate miners were here, as I say, in their thousands and on the neighbouring islands, they worked out uh, pits, deep pits, and those were left then, or they were deliberately filled with water. And I suppose what they were creating, those miners, were ponds, wonderful ponds. And this pond up in the north, west of Seal, which I still haven't found and still haven't visited, it remains very much... Um, on my to-do list, to find list, because it's famous for its its dragonflies. And you do see them certainly on the island and around there are many of these quarry pits that are filled with water, some small, like as this one is, I suspect, some larger, much larger. Um, But but they're wonderful for, for natural life. And they're very good for damselflies and for dragonflies alike. He was me thinking too that I was coming probably at the wrong time of the day. I grew up with a, a father who took me out bird watching, whether I wanted to go or not, very early on summer mornings. And my father had a a wonderful game with himself when she's played with one or two other bird watchers of trying to see a hundred different species of bird in each month of, of May and that would mean that my father would get up not every morning in, in May but many mornings um, at six o'clock or thereabouts and this game didn't just involve him it involved the rest of the flam- family as well and I must admit I was fairly reluctant about it in those pre-teenage years and teenage years, but of course we look back on it with fondness and once the memories are are in place and there were many, there were many When I learned a great deal from my father, um, who was no, he was no professional, he was a nature writer. He wrote about the Scottish hills and was one of the the early mountaineers in in Scotland. A first generation of of real climbers, real rock tigers, if you like, not just hill walkers, but real, real mountaineers, rock climbers. And one of the great privileges of growing up in that family was coming out here to the west coast of Scotland. We lived inland in Perthshire, the only bit of Scotland that is truly landlocked. It was 40, 50 miles to the coast on any side and it feels. So if you say that to an American from the midwest they all roar with laughter and say how can you describe that as landlocked and I understand the difficulty. But it felt truly landlocked, that's the truth of it. Um, wonderful for its glens and rivers and lochs mountains, but the one thing that we lacked and the one thing that I always missed was the sea. And in the summer, earlier than this, we're now into July, um, my parents always knew that really July and August were not the times to come out to the west coast. By then the summer was pretty much ending and more thundery conditions were beginning and there could be terrible Terrible wet weeks and consequently terrible midges too. The two came together. But June, May and June weather were, were the special summer months and quieter on the islands too. So I want to read one poem very deliberately because it recalls my first encounter with this Isle of Seal. When I was at university in Glasgow many years ago, um, a friend of mine, Cheryl, came from what is now the neighbouring island of Ling, to me. I didn't know anything about these islands, these slate islands, down south of Oban. I was used to going west with my parents to Mull and Iona, to Col, to Tyree, to Colensee. But i would never been down to these ones, and they're very neglected. They're very overlooked. And as a result, many treasures in them are overlooked as well. So one day, at whatever point of the summer holidays, I came over with Cheryl to visit her island of Ling. And to visit that, we needed to come over the bridge over the Atlantic. That bridge that I talked about earlier on, which lies just on the other side of that hillside to my east. And came down over the bridge, crossed Seal, and went down, took the little ferry over to, over to Ling. And blink and you would miss that ferry. It's only about 30 seconds across. And when we came back that evening it had been the most beautiful day. We came back to the bridge again and it was just one of those perfect summer evenings in the west coast of Scotland. Probably about midsummer and just perfect, perfect blue, lemon blue light is how I would describe it. And either that evening or an evening not much later, I wrote this, called Argyle, remembering it. And I mention in the poem the islands nearby, which you can see from that bridge. Scarba is one that will be unfamiliar to, to many. Um, an uninhabited island just to the north of Jura. And just to the north of the third biggest whirlpool in the world, the Corryvreckan. Argyle, All down the coast, the air was full of fish and sunset. By nine, the lemon-coloured cottages were warm windows glowing over the bays. Far west, the light, a rim of blue and white. Jura and Mull and Scarba, all carved from shining. On the way home, we stopped to listen to the dark, to the sea coming huge over a hundred beaches. In among the trees in windless stillness, the bats were flitting, weaving patterns with the air. That night I did not want the stars to rise at all. I wanted it to be like this and nothing more, looking west into the sunset, to the very end of the world. And as I finish reading that poem, I'm going to read the one opposite. These are both from my, my collection, Island, a volume of selected poems. Because we're very close to Poldoran here, although I haven't seen any Doran, any otters, this morning I'm nevertheless going to read The Small Giant. It recalls the first otters that I ever really saw properly, which were far further out west off the Isle of Cole. And it was—I had been looking for otters for years, miserably, desperately hoping to see them. Getting up at dawns and wandering miserably out in the drizzle or along shores on whatever island or bit of the mainland I was where I was staying, and never seeing anything. So I gave up looking for otters, and then I saw them. So there seemed to be a kind of equation there. I realized that otters were somehow playing games with me. And I saw these on a, as I say, a really truly miserable West Coast day. Um, so there's no, there's very little poetic license in it. The small giant, the otter is ninety percent water, ten percent god. This is a mastery we have not fathomed in a million years. I saw one once off the teeth of Western Scotland, playing games with the Atlantic three feet of gymnastics taking on an ocean. And I want to finish with a poem about silence, which, as I say, strikes me as rather ironic at the end of this recording where I have been competing with two very, very vocal oyster catchers. And one of them is flying almost... Oh, he's really very unhappy about my presence here, flying almost over my head. So this is about the search for silence, and it's it's somewhat made true on this visit, uh, in all the loveliness. The search. We have to go so far for silence, have to row a long way out to listen. Spoon and spoon the water till we dip the oars. About, above, blue nothingness, an orange edge against the sky, the tips of slow gulls leaving light, ledges of gold light that change and flash in this last softening of sun, a rippled mirror all the way across, this somewhere in between the night and day. Then row slow home, and row, slow home, soundless, leaving the sea unbroken.
0: Ah, lovely lyrical thoughts from Kenneth there. A huge thank you to him for sharing his remote home and his lovely verse with us. And I think the oystercatchers deserve a bit of praise for sharing their own special poetry. You can find out more about Kenneth's writing, especially his poetry, at his website kennethstephen.co.uk. So we'll be back next week, but in the south of England, exploring the wildlife of a summer chalk stream, a rare habitat globally, but extraordinarily special. So please tune in for that. For now, thank you for listening, and please do leave some feedback on iTunes or whatever podcast provider you use. And you can contact me, Fergus Collins, at this email address, editor at countryfire.com. I love hearing your thoughts on the podcast, and I try to reply to every email if I can. So, you've been listening to the BBC Country Farm Magazine podcast, produced in Bristol by Jack Bateman. Thanks for listening, and goodbye for now.